Hello and welcome to Bramcast, a podcast by the Bram Stoker Club of the University Philosophical Society, Trinity College Dublin. My name is Stephen O'Sullivan and I'll be your host for today. Today we're joined by Ed Maloney. Ed Maloney is an award-winning journalist and author and one of the most authoritative writers on the Troubles in Northern Ireland. Covering the region since 1978, he served as Northern Editor of the Irish Times from 1981 to 85 and Northern Editor of the Sunday Tribune from 1987 to 2001. In 1999, he was awarded Irish Journalist of the Year. After the Good Friday Agreement, Ed Maloney, along with Dr. Anthony McIntyre, started the Belfast Project, otherwise known as the Boston College Tapes, an oral history archive of interviews with former paramilitary members in Northern Ireland. His book, Voices from the Grave, Two Men's War in Ireland, was based on interviews from this archive and told the stories of IRA commander Brendan Hughes and UVF member and subsequent PUP politician David Irvine in a manner that they could not tell to the broader public while living. He has also written a biography of Ian Paisley, Paisley, From Demagogue to Democrat, and produced two documentary films, Voices from the Grave, on the same topic as the book of the same name, and I, Dolores, a film about the life of the late Dolores Price, also completed with interviews taken while she was alive. Today, we discuss his book, A Secret History of the IRA, which has been described as the best history of the paramilitary organization ever written. We talk about the genesis of the provisional IRA and the causes of their split from the official IRA in 1969. We delve into the early days of the provost, the 1974 ceasefire, and Jerry Adams' swift descent to the top of the organization. Was Adams ever ideological? How did he hold such sway over the organization from inside Lankesh? How and why did he move the IRA towards electoral politics and ceasefires when he had launched scathing attacks on the early Provo leadership for doing much the same thing? These are all questions that Ed and I discuss. We close on what Ed would add to the third edition of A Secret History of the IRA, were he to release one, and what he would say to a generation of people that have grown up without any memory of the Troubles. This is our conversation with Ed Maloney. Ed, thank you very much for coming on the Bramcast. No problem at all. I hope I enjoy the experience. We shall see. You've um, lived in New York now for the past couple of decades. Mm-hmm. Have you found it easier, conducive to writing about Northern Ireland when you're separated by a full ocean? I think so. I think, I think it does help. First of all, you can get to uh, the stage where you can put things, you know, in a proper perspective, perhaps, you know. Along with our move over here was my sort of... Um, slowing down of sort of daily or weekly type of journalism and really much more interested in writing a book that might people might be interested in, you know. I think that becomes more important, that type of uh, journalism, as you get on, you know, mm-hmm. for sure. Maybe we could start with where the Provisional IRA started. When people talk about the Provisional IRA now, most people will credit the inaction of the IRA to defending Catholics in the North at the outbreak of the Troubles. That was the cause for the provost splitting off. But how significant a factor was Cahill Goulding's move to the left and the Marxist instillment in the organization and with, you know, discontent within the ranks because of that shift to the left? Well, the shift to the left is inseparable from running down the IRA, which was happening at the, at the same time. And so that became two horns of the same beast as far as the provosts were concerned. That was, you know, to justify their politics. This is very much how they saw it, you know? Mm-hmm. It seems that the provost had 
a mixed relationship with socialism because in Voices from the Grave, Brendan Hughes talks about his time as in the Merchant Navy and his exposure to socialism. Right. Richard O'Raw talks about, you yes. know, how they idolize yes. it. Yes. But how do we rectify that with the aggression towards Marxist ideas that were manifest in the 70s? Like you write in The Secret History, how one fellow had a priest sent to him because he was reading James Connolly mm. and Hughes ordered the burning of all Marxist books in Lankesh. How do we rectify that? I don't know. I don't know how you do it. I guess it's part of the maturing process, but maybe that's the kind way of describing what was what was happening. Uh, perhaps it was something deeper than that, you know. But um, as far as people like Brendan Hughes was concerned, his was a journey of education as much as anything else, you know. So a lot of where he ended up was not where he started at all, you know. Very interesting in that respect. What provoked that journey of education? Was it just the development of the troubles or certain exposures particular to Brendan Hughes? I think a lot of it was down to Brendan Hughes himself. I mean, he was a very, very special guy. There's no doubt about that. Man of considerable talents and intellect, you know. Not very well educated in the formal sense, but very well educated in terms of, you know, the need to know and uh, formulating a guide for the best type of, of life for humanity you know that would be where brendan came from i think you know mm -hmm. very much so going back to um you know the early days of the provost jerry adams was ambivalent was he at the start mm -hmm. as regards keeping with the officials or the provost what caused that ambivalence because it seems at first glance his family like they went with the provost at the yes. start what could have provoked such ambivalence in him well, I think he was genuinely going in a leftward direction. You look back at uh, his role at that time, and his role particularly as the PRO of the Bally Murphy branch of, uh, of Sinn Féin uh, in the pre-split period of time, and you, you'll see him writing press releases and making statements which would not be too dissimilar from the sort of stuff that we now would associate with Gerry Adams, you know? In other words, there's a consistency there, if you like, you know? But that doesn't explain how he became such a, an important figure inside the provost. And I think, you know, that is something which, you know, I, I think has really defied explanation because, uh, right, OK, so he was a very bright guy. Uh, he came from a family that was steeped in the, in the tradition and stuff like that. But was he really that good or was he that good because there were lots of other people who were good around him? You know, that's, I think, going to be one of the arguments which, which we will be having for a long, long time, I think. Mm -hmm. But not enough is known about um, the actuality of, of that period of time because, there's, you know, there's really no proper attempt to record what took place, unfortunately. That has got lost, you know, that comes down to the sort of stuff that I have been, you know, very interested in, which is to, you know, try to record as much as you can of what took place uh, in in the uh, mouths of those who, who took part in what was going on. Notwithstanding the lack of evidence or the lack of account of his early days, would you still feel confident enough to describe him as an, an ideological man in those early days? He seemed to be, before, before 1974, he seemed to be quite mm. dedicated to his ideology. Yeah. Well, if he was ideological, then he should have gone with the with the officials, right? Because that's okay. where that's where his political heart more or less lay. If you if you look at statements that he was coming out with, the sort of activity that he was involved with in Bally Murphy, or you know things like zebra crossings for uh, school kids and stuff like that, you know, all very 
familiar when you look at what happened with the official IRA and Workers' Party many, many years later, you know. So, yeah, he started off in that direction. But that doesn't explain, as I say, it doesn't explain how he rose so quickly and with such apparent ease to the very, very top of the provost, you know. Mm-hmm. That is something I've really had difficulty getting my head around, you know. Yeah, sure, he was good, but was he that good, you know? Uh, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Because he was, within three years, he was on the delegation yeah, that went to that's London. That's saying, that's right. He's up there with the leadership, mm-hmm. you know. He's virtually on, you know, he's not in the army council. He's on the very, very edge of it, you know, mm-hmm. and he soon will be. So how, how did that happen, you know? And when you ally that to what would have been known inside the IRA at that time, which is that Jerry was not an operator. Yes. Okay? He had not done stuff, right? Had he ever fired a gun in anger? Very doubtful, you know? So he didn't have a sort of military record to sort of uh, send his other message, the other message that he wanted sent, which was that he was solid on the IRA side, you know? So um, how then did it happen? Are you driven to sort of ask the question that was the Republican movement at that time so bereft of talent that someone like Jerry Adams shone out? I don't think so, because when you look at some of the characters that were around at that time, they were quite impressive, you know, particularly those who went on to form the officials, you know. Mm -hmm. 1974 came then, and of course that was the ceasefire, the first one. Adams was dead against that from within Lankesh, wasn't he? Yes. In, in his Brownie articles. Yes. And yet, he seemed to have huge influence on the provost just from those Brownie articles. You know, it ultimately, you write about how the Revolutionary Council was formed, the reorganization mm. of the IRA. Mm. How did he have that much influence from behind the prison fence? That's one of the puzzling questions, you know, because he, as I say, he did not have you know, a name as being, you know, a major operator, right? Um, Okay, was he a a good strategist, a good tactician? Yes, certainly. But was he that good? I don't know. It's hard to tell, you know. Mm -hmm. But again, it's one of these points. How did it happen? It's going to be one of these puzzling questions about Jerry Adams, really, you know. Given that he really wasn't militarily that active, right? And... And the provost always liked their their top men to be activists, you know. Mm-hmm. And yeah, he defied that rule somehow. And everyone knew that, you know. Mm-hmm. Jerry was not an operator, you know. Short of like the release of his personal diaries or maybe his own type of Boston College recordings, <laughs> do you think it can be answered given we're, too, you know, so many decades on? From I don't the... think so, yeah. no. That's a fierce pity. It is. I don't think we'll ever really find out. Mm-hmm. We'll be arguing, you know, in the same way that people argued about Collins de Valera, you know, yeah. in exactly the same sort of way, you know. Mm-hmm. It would be fascinating material, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The following decade then, from say 74 on, and when Adams was up against the O'Connell O'Brien leadership, I guess my question is, when did he change from the really idealistic person that was dead against the ceasefire, that criticised the proposal to get rid of the requirement that Britain leave Ireland within one life of parliament. Mm. After O'Connell and O'Brodig were out of the picture, and you say he was, um, another example is when O'Connell and O'Brodig were talking about a quasi-participatory basis in the European elections, mm. like he was dead against that. And yet once they were out of the picture, he did the exact same thing, if yes. not further. We see, this again is, is one of the great unanswered questions and mm-hmm. too often unasked questions about 
about the Provers is like just exactly where, what are their ideological origins, mm-hmm. you know? Brendan Hughes at that time, what year was he made commander inside Lancash again? Oh, you're talking about what, 74, I think mm-hmm. it was. Mm-hmm. 73, 74, 75, that sort of period. He commanded huge respect yes. at the time. Where did that respect sprout from within his comrades? I guess because he was someone who uh, who did what he said he would do with them, as far as he was, they were concerned, mm-hmm. that he stood by them when when they needed him to to stand by them, and uh, he he was capable of not only talking the talk, but walk, walking the walk, mm-hmm. you know, and nothing matters or mattered more at that time inside the provost than that ability. You know, if you had that ability, you were leadership materials almost straight away. You know. So Kieran Nugent was the first man to go on the blanket. Yes. Um, Brendan Hughes was then subsequently moved into the, the blanket cage, was he? Now you're asking me a question which defies my memory to answer properly. The question was going towards, it was his call to start the first hunger strike. Right. One that's often for, forgotten. Yes. Um, prior to Bobby Sands. It ended in kind of murky circumstances. Was there the document that he purportedly saw but was too blind to understand or had a misunderstanding? Because it seems Richard O'Raw had one account. There were slight differences in his recollection of the period or interpretation of the period into your book. What is the, the common ground that everybody agrees on when it comes to the end of that hunger strike? That it was going to happen. I think, I think everyone was aware of that. Mm-hmm. Everyone was aware of that. I mean, it, it, it couldn't go on forever to begin with. Mm-hmm. The political... Capital had been won with the Sands election. It should have ended there. And I, I think this is the point where a lot of people who studied Adam's career are forced to ask the question just how ruthless was, was he, you know? Because there's absolutely no doubt in my mind that had he been in favour of the uh, hunger strike ending much uh, earlier the hunger strike would have ended much earlier. There's, mm-hmm. there's absolutely no doubt about that, mm-hmm. but it didn't. And that was in no small measure because of his assistance in that regard. Mm-hmm. And Bick McFarlane's, his story, you know, changed as regards mountain climber, whether there were certain details that changed. And I know and I can't ask you to look inside another man's mind, but can that discrepancy be explained by just like a blind allegiance to Adams? Like, or now, what, describe the, the discrepancy in a bit more detail. I think Bick McFarlane, didn't, at the start, denied that the offer was made. And then I think afterwards, when Richard O'Raw published his book, mm. it, Bick McFarlane said, well, it was made, but we never agreed on it. Mm. Mm. Less to do with that specific discrepancy, but did Adams have such dedication as to have people go through like double things like this? You know, deny what they actually had in their memory in support of the Republican cause. Well, one can only go by the evidence, and the evidence suggests very strongly that he does have yeah. that power and influence, you know, yeah. because this is exactly what has happened. Mm-hmm. People who, who told story A at a particular point in time are now telling story Z, you know, mm-hmm. at a, a slightly changed circumstances, you know, mm-hmm. and you have to ask yourself, how does that happen? You know? mm-hmm. From 1984 to 1994, it was more or less the same Army Council, you said, with one or two exceptions. Now, you named Adams, uh, Pat Doherty, Slab Murphy, McGuinness, Mikey McKevitt, and another northern adjutant from South Armagh. Uh, you, you didn't name him in the book. Uh, Why was that? 
you know, I actually quite forgetting entirely why why I, I dropped his his name out of that. There must there must have been a legal reason of some oh, sort. Oh, I see. Okay. You know? Something that Penguin noticed at the time. Yes. You know, and yes. you know, you have to do those sort of things at the time. You know. Of course. Yeah. yeah. Um, the first verse of the peace process you wrote happened earlier than Sinn Féin will admit. It was around 86, I think. Mm, mm. And all throughout that time, this is subsequent years, Adams was talking to Hume. He was talking to some of the British. Uh, he was talking to Hawhey through Reed. And yet all the time, it seemed the, the other figures thought that he was speaking for the Army Council. How is it that it never slipped back to the Army Council? Like, I mean, there's, given the level of British penetration we know they had in the IRA, that it never, nobody never said, you know, don't worry about this. We're talking to Adams. Because Adams always had the support of the chief of staff for what he was doing. Okay. Whoever that chief of staff was, you know. Okay. Uh, so he didn't have that particular problem. You know, theoretically, yes, you're right. It should have happened. In, in any other organization, it might have happened. But this is not a normal or democratic type of organization. Mm -hmm. It doesn't operate by those sort of rules, you know. Mm -hmm. So um, that's how he's able to do it. Mm -hmm. And he's very good at it. So it's around... The end of the 80s as well, the Escond was sabotaged, right? I think there was... Yes. The Tet Offensive. Whose idea was that? Did it have the full support? Like, were people saying, like, this is the future? Because it's just hard to think, like, how they could said, you know, we're going to have a Tet Offensive, we're going to launch a full frontal attack, but then the boys are talking about peace on the quiet. Because it was all predicated uh, on the Exxon getting through. The Exxon was the um, boat that was carrying... Uh, the heavy weaponry that was going to make a difference in terms of taking on British mm -hmm. armour, particularly in border areas and places like that, uh, that was all lost. You know, the, just the, vo the volume of, of equipment that they would have acquired would have enabled them to continue fighting a war for a foreseeable future, you know, mm -hmm. without, without a shadow of a doubt. Uh, that was all lost, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, so they were left with um, the remaining shipments from Libya. And the question that you are forced to ask is that did the British actually allow those shipments to come through? Mm -hmm. Did they have um, good information? You know, and, and I know that there was um, at least on one occasion when the Army Council had information about a, an Irish army move against one of the major pre-excellent arms dumps but that turned out to be a false, false alarm. So, you know, they were, they were keeping their eyes and ears open. You know? mm -hmm. Have you any idea, or do you have somebody in mind as to who, who you think sabotaged or gave up the escond? Oh, I think there were probably so many candidates for that job that it would be difficult to do so, you know, because mm -hmm. I think the truth, is, as we're beginning to, to understand it, is, is, appears to be that, you know, the IRA had... Had Scapatici as as an informer, mm -hmm. right? And Scapatici opened so many many doors into the IRA that by the period that we're talking about, by that stage, if you're so thoroughly infiltrated, you'd have to ask questions about who actually was who, who actually was running the ship. Really, mm -hmm. at the end at the end of the day, I think at that level of penetration, I think it was I think it was very very severe. Mm -hmm. You know, much more severe than they would they would ever admit. Mm -hmm. Moving on, then. I suppose, towards the latter end of the provisional's time. The ceasefire in 1994. You wrote that there was significant opposition within the rank and file of the IRA to that ceasefire because 
of course, in 74, they said we'll never have a ceasefire again unless the British plan to get out. How was the ceasefire happened when, I think you said almost three quarters, one source said, were against this ceasefire? Uh, that's the story of Irish republicanism, isn't it? Because that's how most ceasefires have been, have been won at the end of the day. A minority has moved for it mm-hmm. and um, has managed to achieve uh, command of the battlefield, if you like, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, mm-hmm. I think that, that thing has... Certainly, in the initial stages of the of the internal Republican debate, less so in in, in later years. But um, yeah, and the four month figure was quite fortunate, wasn't it? Because the first the ceasefire was called, and then they said it in a four month time frame, and it allowed them to deny whether it was a three or six month ceasefire. They said no way. Exactly. Um, exactly. That's one of the um, identification stamps, if you like. That's Adams's hand. Mm-hmm. He's the sort of guy who's clever enough to come up with a, an idea like that, mm-hmm. or clever enough to have people around him who come up with ideas like that. Okay. Uh, and you've got to give that to Adams. He's been a masterful operator. Absolutely incredible, really. The people around him, the think tank, was that an official group? In what sense now? Was it, was it in the army constitution? Was it official in the sense that people knew about it? Like it, Adams had a group that said Adams is going to go to the think tank now. Or was it a group of people that he would consult and maybe the members of the think tank themselves didn't know they were in this quote unquote think tank? Oh, no, I think people knew about the think tank. Okay. That's had its name and everything, you know, quite an early stage. You know? Okay, so that name was there in... Contemporaneously. Yeah. Yes, yes. I see. Okay. Yeah. And how generative was that think tank towards the peace process? Like, I suppose you couldn't credit Adams with the whole genesis of the peace process, but how much came from him and how much came from the lads around him and Alec Reed in particular? I think there's a there's a danger in overrating the importance of Father Reed. He was okay. he was obviously very important in terms of the role that he did actually play, you know, but um there was an element within the Republican movement which didn't really take him, take him very seriously, you know, mm-hmm. right up to the very top, in fact, you know. Who was responsible for the ideas that led to the breakthrough of the peace I think process? I think it was like one of these things that happens. People come, come into contact with each other and, mm-hmm. and, and somehow that comes out of it, you know. So Alec Reed certainly had a, had a considerable influence on Adams. But there's no doubt in my mind that Adams was moving in that direction anyway. Okay. You know? That was the logic of where he, where he was going. You know, when you go political uh, in the sense that you seek people's votes, then you, your politics have to adapt accordingly. Mm-hmm. Right? And he knows that as Republicans. That's yeah. part of their history, of their mm-hmm. bloody history. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, he knows that. You know? And we all know that, really. Mm-hmm. So that's why it's so important. I know I'm restraining myself from asking again, but how did he change from such an ideological man to, you know, the peace Because he never was one. Okay. That he never really was. That's the only conclusion you can come to. I suppose, That that the ideology was, was not fixed. Yes. Never was fixed, Mm -hmm. right? And could depend on circumstances, perhaps. I don't know, you know. But, I mean, he made all the right moves at the right time. He stayed with Belfast, stayed with the Hawks. Could have been a big noise in in the officials, if he'd gone over, mm-hmm. he'd, he'd been right up there with Macmillan, you know, mm-hmm. uh, the very top of the officials in, in Belfast. So he was spurning that advance in favour of a slower but more important climb, you know. If there's a danger of overestimating the importance of Alec Reed, is there another figure or character you think is doesn't get credit even this many years on? for their contributions to the peace process, an, an unsung hero in some respects. Do, do I think there is someone like that? Yes, that still doesn't get credit. 
I mean, you know, you could make a list of people without whose contribution the peace yeah. process would never have happened, right? So they're all candidates for that, mm -hmm. you could say, right? Mm -hmm. uh, whether you would actually single out single one, I don't, I don't know. I wouldn't want to do that myself. Mm -hmm. you know? mm -hmm. The 1994 ceasefire came to an end after 26 months when the General Army Convention was called. And by all accounts, Adams got a hammering between the motions. I mean, I think one of the Tyrone brigades were going to table the motion no confidence, which was pulled. And there was another motion that said would be ban being a member of political parties, mm. so on and so forth. This is the convention you're talking about. Yes. yes. Yet Adams emerged with, I think, six or seven votes. Mm. How does one get hammered by the rank and file in the motion and then come out with a supermajority? Because the other thing was, they changed it to try and restrain him by getting rid of the simple majority. Now you need it, I think it was five or seven votes. How does that happen? Well, go and ask a member of the British Labour Party and they'll tell you exactly how it happens, right? Because mm -hmm. exactly the same process mm -hmm. occurs within its ranks that happens inside the provost's ranks, right? Mm -hmm. Which is that the, the game is decided before, before the whistle has blown, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, and, and in a sense, people are working to a script, you know? Mm -hmm. So the winners and losers are already known. Mm -hmm. More or less. I don't know if anything formal ever happens. Sometimes I, I think it possibly could, you know, but um, that would be the situation always, you know. They wouldn't go into this blind, you know. I thought it was, I thought it was very funny. Um, in one of the lines in your book, it described how when they elected the executive, which then elects the council, right? Mm -hmm. um, oh, they elected, I think it was Frank McGuinness. Uh -huh. And he missed his ride? Yeah, that's oh, right. I know, I know. Was that intentional, do you think? Was it? I, 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 I don't think so, talking yeah. to people. No, Just I, don't, I, don't, I don't think so. I think the, the moves against the um, McEvitt fa faction in, in, at, the, at that convention were more to do with what took place during, in, during, the, during the convention before it, you know, than, yes. than the absence of one individual. I don't think one individual mm -hmm. made a difference there, you know. And around all this time, it seems as though the Irish government and the British government were very intent on keeping Adams in power. Yet after that convention, maybe, was it... it I, after... I, think they've, I think they've been trying to keep Adams in power for years. If, I, think they, I think they spotted Adams very early on mm -hmm. as someone who was of considerable political importance on the, on the nationalist side, you know, and there were signs there that, you know, perhaps, you know, he could maybe move in some important directions, perhaps, you know, people like Paddy McGroy would tell them that, you know, for example, uh, who's Adams' lawyer, you know, that would play a role in it for sure, you know. Mm -hmm. So he needn't necessarily have been an asset of the British? No. That they could have spotted him? No, I don't think so. No, no. I don't think so. No. I may be wrong. Yes. You know, history has a habit of coming up with surprises like that, you know. But I, it would really surprise me were that, were that to be the case. I mean, to do that for how many years? You know, when you look back at the spy stories of the Philby era and what have you, you know, they don't last much longer than, you know, a few years after being caught, you know, that's it, boom, you know, or they have to flee and they're dead, more or less, you know. Mm -hmm. Why would they be any different? You know? And it seemed, even after the Good Friday Agreement, that the, the British and Irish governments, they were giving Adams a lot of room to run. Even when he was no in danger of, he was in no danger of his leadership being supplanted. And then, of course, you write about the Dockey, the money transfer raid, the raid up north. I guess my question is, why did the IRA keep doing these illicit fundraisers, we'll call them? Because they could. 
they could do it. They were confident that A, they could actually pull the thing op operations off and B, that they could get away with it. I don't think it would have gone ahead on, uh, unless it was on that basis. Now, that raises a whole forest of other questions, right, which, um, which you know, we don't have answers to. And, and, you know, a lot of people haven't even put the questions together, even though they may be in their heads, you know, that, um, you know, was there some sort of other explanation for this mm -hmm. old robbery, you know, was there... Was it some sort of payoff or something like that? You know, um, blah, blah, blah. That's the sort of talk that happens, even though it may be wildly inaccurate, that's nevertheless it often uh, uh, is listened to by receptive ears, you know. Mm -hmm. And the motive for them, would it just have been just for the sake of getting money for, yeah, the, for the party? because they could do it, I reckon. Yeah. And it comes back down to something so simple that they could do it, you know. Yeah. And they had some smart people working in the financial side of uh, of the IRA, particularly mm -hmm. in Belfast, you know. Going back, I think it was Frank McGuinness, McEvitt and Slab Murphy that were the most against Adams in the 96 convention, were most against him in the subsequent convention. Yet only McEvitt and McGuinness went to join the real IRA. Mm. And Slab Murphy became chief of staff. Is there any explanation we know for why Slab didn't join them? I, I would say it's, with South Armark, it also comes down to money, you know, and it's, that's it's a business as much as anything else, you mm -hmm. know. So where are the family interests more likely to be safeguarded? Mm -hmm. That would, I think, probably at the end of the day, although people wouldn't admit it, would be one of the major factors in the decision-making process. Yeah. You know? So you can answer your own, your own question in a sense as well, you mm -hmm. know. Slab Murphy had the farm and the border, did he? Yes, yes. And he was smuggling everything beneath and above. And had been for like donkey's years. Yeah, I suppose in that respect, the ideology was yeah. shallow to his pocket. It, it, that's what I'm saying. I mean, when, when, when your major um, revolutionary is actually a crook, you know, yeah. uh, um, you know, what does that do to his politics, you know? What would you add to the third edition of the book? Oh, God. If you were to oh. print one. I would write about the death of Irish republicanism, I think. That would be the final chapter, that this is what we're actually witnessing, I think, at the moment, you know, is as, uh, as an important ideology. I think um, this, will, this will see it off, you know, because there will be a deal of some sort done, I think, you know, mm -hmm. assuming the, the deal goes along in the way that you expect it to, mm -hmm. then, you know, that, that would be a nice solution for everyone, you know. It is a big thing, you know, with Sinn Féin, at least prior to the last Red Sea poll, that they were looking at going into coalition, you know, in the next election, they seem mm. to be the most likely. And yet we seem to have, have seen the death of Irish republicanism, as you see it. Vincent Brown said they're like Fine Gael. I don't know, is that your, is your, is, do you have a similar opinion in that? Have Sinn Féin, like, abandoned the, the ideology that they nominally claim to represent. Well, you see, that that's, uh, comes to the, the, the core of the argument about the provost, which is, were they ever Republicans or, or were they defenders? Which strain did they come from? It's absolutely no doubt in my mind they're the defender strain, right? And when you're, when you're motivated by your defense of your land and your people and your family and what have you, and you're open to deals and you're open to, to um, compromises and stuff like that. You know, if your politics is of a different sort, more ideologically based, then, then you know, you've got more fuel for the fire there, as it feel like, you know. And it turned, it turned out to be the former, not the latter.
you know so much about the Troubles, probably more than anybody. But what about the Troubles do you wish you knew more about? About the British side. I'd really love to know what, what was going on in the internal intelligence debates, mm-hmm. you know, from the early 70s, mid-70s onwards, when they started to get seriously involved in intelligence-wise in, in Northern Ireland. From there on, you know, if you could get access to that sort of material, you'd have a fantastic story, I think, you know. But I don't think we're ever going to see it. No, you don't think they're I, hidden away in some cupboard? The, the British don't, don't reveal that sort of stuff easily, you know. Yeah. No. You were involved in the Boston College project yourself. Mm. Uh, yeah. Did the Boston College, did they return the interviews to the interviewees or are they still in possession of some of them? Um, I don't know if they still have any because we're not exactly on speaking terms these days. But that was, I think, the idea. Whether they were all returned or not, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I did hear a story from someone that there was one set of interviews that were not returned. Mm-hmm. And that was it. Mm-hmm. But I don't know whether that's true or not. Mm-hmm. You know. Have you a Boston College tape of Ed Maloney? So not necessarily, you know, one formal, but, you know, there is information that you know that for whatever confidentiality or, you know, just honor, friendship, you can't release. But have you a backup, say, God forbid, were anything to happen in the next decade, that the information is still there to be found? Well, God forbid anything like that happens, but if it does, then you'll find out what the answer to that question is. That's fair enough. You wrote so much about... Some of the bad things that, horrible things the IRA did. But would you have considered some of them, you know, towards the last years to be friends? Well, you know, this is the danger about being a journalist is that you do get a wee bit close, too close sometimes with the people you're, um, you're supposed to be writing about, you know. Mm-hmm. And yeah, but then, you know, I would, I would like to say that I'm, I also had the same sort of relationship with on the loyalist side, you know. Mm-hmm. And I know that, for example, it was, um, it was because that the UDA knew me that an attempt by the official IRA to get me assassinated failed only because the people like Terry McMichael knew Ed Maloney and said, that, that can't be true, let's check it out. And they did check it out and turned out to be a lie. And hence my life was saved, you know? So, um, yeah. Did you only learn about that attempt recently? Yeah, that- well, in, in, the last, in the last wee while, yes, yeah. Can you name now the seventh member of the Army Council, or is it still? No, I can't. I've forgotten them, to be honest with you. I, yeah. I'm, I've written down somewhere, but I couldn't. Oh, sorry. Top of my head, say. Maybe on the broken on the broken elbow website, you'll put it. Maybe, maybe it'll be there somewhere. Last question: What would you say to a member of my generation that doesn't, you know, has grown up without memory of the troubles, only reads about it like I do through books like yours? What's something? to be learned about the troubles that you won't read, that you won't listen to, that you probably can't get through the, you know, the hindsight recollection. In every story, there's going to be a majority and minority slant in the direction that it goes, you know. And the comfortable road for most journalists is to take that road where everyone else is going, you know, the majority road, you know. The other road is much harder to take, the minority road. Because you've got to be sure that you're going in the right direction in a surer way than the other guys, right? Because if you get caught out, you're going to look really bad, you know? So that's really what it's about at the end of the day, you know? And it's, I would say that that's the way that I've judged stories and judged the way I shape my journalism is in terms of those you know, answers to those questions, you know? Ed Maloney, thank you very much for coming on to Ramcast. My pleasure. Thank you. 
That was our conversation with Ed Malone. If you enjoy the podcast, please like and subscribe. Until next time, thank you for listening to Bramcast.